Johnny and AJ here. Do you struggle to spark a connection with possible friends and love interests? Is social anxiety or awkwardness getting in your way? Listen, your social anxiety, awkwardness, and lack of confidence are thwarting your attempts at meaningful relationships. But there's something you could do about it. After coaching over 9,000 clients on how to master social confidence, we've learned a thing or two about what it actually takes to spark an instant connection with someone. We've packaged these insights inside a download called the Instant Connection Kit. And as a thank you for being a podcast listener, we want to give you this kit for free. Inside the Instant Connection Kit, you'll get three resources to help you spark a connection with anyone in any social setting. These resources include our popular conversation formula, small talk conversation starters, and a resource to understand emotional bids. To get your hands on this kit and immediately start improving your relationships, go to theartofcharm.com slash connect. Remember, you could do something about your social anxiety, awkwardness, introversion, and more. Start with our instant connection kit at theartofcharm.com slash connect. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research in the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right, let's kick off today's show. To wrap up 2022, we've prepared a best of the year episode for you, giving you a glimpse into some of our favorite episodes this year. Let's kick things off with our toolbox episode from April, where Johnny and I discuss low value behaviors. Check out the segment where we talk specifically about the verbal and nonverbal components of supplicative behavior. If you are in a situation where you are chasing these three things, attention, approval, acceptance, constantly from others, you oftentimes will be exhibiting these low value behavior patterns. You will then be communicating to those who are high value that you're not ready for self-actualization. You're living a life of scarcity and scarcity actually robs anyone else in your life from getting to that next level. It's an anxiety place that does not allow one to self-actualize. So if you're following along, we're going to go through these three behaviors, break down some nonverbal and verbal signals so that you will most likely first start to see them in others. That's completely normal. And that's a cognitive bias. We all view ourselves in a higher regard than we are in reality. 
And we're able very quickly to recognize patterns in others that we're probably exhibiting in ourselves, which is why in the X Factor Accelerator, we're filming our clients constantly to hold up that mirror, to give you an opportunity to get beyond your cognitive distortions that are keeping you from that self-actualization, that are keeping you from your real potential. So supplicative is an old word. It's an old word. It means to beg. And what have we been talking about this whole time? Value, attention, approval, and acceptance. So it is behaviors that beg for people to like you. And I'm going to give everyone a mission who's listening to this right now. And your mission is to go out to a social event this evening and ask 50 people to please like me. That's what I want you to do. I want you to walk up to 50 people and ask them to please like you. How would you feel? How would that make you feel? Now, for most people, you're probably cringing wherever you are right now. And you should be because that is a very low value behavior. It puts you in a place of needing attention, acceptance, and approval from other people. That is supplicative behavior. Now, we're going to break down a bunch of those behaviors to give you an idea of what you're going to be looking for. And if we come across any behaviors that you exhibit, I want you to be honest with yourself because the more honest you are with yourself listening to this podcast right now, the better you're going to be after this is over. All right. The faster the change is going to happen. Right. We can't change ourselves if we're dishonest about it. So please like me. Let's start with that lens, right? We do this in a lot of nefarious ways that are unconscious, that we don't even realize. The first is the victim narrative, where everything in life is conspiring against you. You being at the center of it, your boss is out to get you, your neighbor is screwing with you, that person who cut you off is trying to keep you from getting to work. If you find yourself consistently feeling like you are the victim of someone else's behaviors and actions, you're actually acting in a supplicative manner. You are using that victim mentality and that victim narrative to get other people to pay attention to you, to get other people to support you, to get other people invested in you. Now, it doesn't at the surface seem supplicative, right? It's not like, please, I'm begging you to like me. But playing the victim is actually begging people to support you. And you can draw a direct line to childhood, right? Crying to get attention, approval, and acceptance. As we mentioned, some people never grow out of that first pattern, right? So there we have the victim mentality. Now, what goes with the victim mentality? We have shrinking, so getting smaller. If you go to a social event and you find yourself up against the wall, immediately pulling out your phone, trying to shrink into the bushes like the, the Homer Simpson meme, meme, you're being supplicative. You're, there's a reason for doing that, and it's not feeling as if you are able to take up, worthy of taking up that space. This is very important. Now, you mo you're not going to logically come to that conscious conclusion, but these are, we're talking about deep-seated innate behaviors. Now, <laughs> when we think about being smaller, crossing our arms, hiding 
not being visible. Closing your body off. Is also a way to make yourself smaller. You might not physically be smaller in stature, but if, if you're against the wall at an event, if you're trying not to be seen, if you're actually avoiding interaction, you are playing the victim. You are being smaller. You are supplicating, hoping that someone will see you in your small, stricken state and come over and talk to you. Now, another way that we supplicate, another way that we beg other people to like us. So you're looking to other people to make decisions. So whatever way the wind blows, that's great for you. And in fact, the more decisions other people are making, the better, because you don't have to put yourself out on a limb. Your decisions are not the ones that are going to be scrutinized. You could just bob your head, nod your head and say, this is fine, no matter what's going on around you. Being a people pleaser. People pleaser. Constantly elevating the opinions of others. So maybe you overheard someone say, oh, those shoes are out of style. And immediately you stop wearing them. You lose all conviction. You are unwilling to put your neck out there for fear that you will no longer get the attention. You will no longer be approved of and you will no longer be accepted in the group. So think about how much... Have you shape-shifted, chameleoned to be a part of something? Do you find yourself constantly joining different countercultures and, and changing your identity? One minute you're a rock and roller, and the next minute you're emo, and the next minute you're going out in your athletic gear. If you don't actually have conviction and you're so worried about other people's opinions and approval of you, these people-pleasing tendencies are supplicative. And, you know, I was, while you're bringing that up, memories going back to when you're a teenager and you're trying to discover who your identity, right? Your own identity outside of your family, right? This is the first time when you see other kids and you're trying to connect with them and you want to, you see certain groups that may aesthetically look interesting to you, or you see the kids who are getting all the attention. So you want to be like one of those kids. So what we see is teenagers putting themselves out on a limb, trying to feel their way into an identity in which they're going to be accepted. That is such an incredibly difficult time for young people, but it is part of the process. And that's why so many of us don't have necessarily fond memories <laughs> of those high school, middle school moments of trying to figure out that identity and figure out which herd you are a part of, truly. The last one I want to bring up is agreeableness. And it is part of the ocean psychology test, temperament test. And we use it as an intake form for our program. So there's certain patterns that a lot of our, our clients tend to, to fall into. It's a great test just to look at personalities. And agreeableness and being high on agreeable is it, it's either really high with agreeableness or really low on agreeableness. So either rigid or you say yes to everything because it's the easy answer. And people pleasers tend to say yes to everything. And I, and I want to make a special note here as well. There's nothing wrong with being overly agreeable. It's only when you put everyone else's needs before your own. This is much like, you, you, I've heard you use this analogy of being on an airplane and putting your mask on before you put on, uh, you're helping your passengers. Yeah. It's this need to check in with everyone while you're out. 
How you doing? You liking the music? How's the beverage? Is it okay is the, for you? <laughs> is the food okay? What about the temperature? You know, it's this constant outward attention on other people's comfort, other people's needs. And in fact, many times, and I, I've struggled with this myself, you then get to a point where you can't even articulate your own needs because you're so tuned in to the needs of others. And this was a big part of my childhood, the way that I was raised, that my dad's needs were on a pedestal. They were the most important. And I remember watching the, I believe it was a Chris Rock uh, special where dad always got the chicken leg, you know, same thing in my house. And it was like, everyone was happy when dad's needs were met because dad worked his tail off in a blue collar job to put food on the table. So we were all managing his needs first. And in, in turn, that quieted my needs, pushed my needs to the side, my emotions I was less in tune of. Now, of course, at first, being supplicative is a way to get your foot in the door. Sure. Right? Who doesn't like an agreeable person? Who doesn't <laughs> like someone who's going to foot the bill? Who's going to be the one to cover the Uber ride? Who's going to be the one to always text first and always respond? Right? But that robs you of effort, energy to meet your own needs, to put that oxygen mask on first, to get to a level of self-actualization. So we've done a bunch of behaviors there for supplicative. I also want to make sure that we throw in a few nonverbals. Yeah. Because everyone's like, oh, I don't do any of that. I don't do any of that. I want, I want to throw in a few nonverbals because those are always the trickiest, and then we'll go on to the next one. How's that sound? Let's so the most important nonverbal, I think, that cannot be understated in this, and we see it all the time, and it's why we do video work, is too much positive body language. Now, on this podcast, it's going to be a little bit difficult uh, for us to go through this, but this is going to be on YouTube as well. So the first, the front half of me is positive body language. If I was shoulder to shoulder with AJ, then we would be neutral to each other. And then if I turned my back to AJ, that is negative body language. Agreeable people who are looking for attention, approval, and acceptance tend to go full positive to everyone they speak to, to such a high degree that it puts too much pressure on the person that they're speaking to. This makes the other person feel, uh, have some anxiety get on them. They're feeling tension and pressure in order to perform and entertain this person they're speaking to. And so for them, it will be easier to opt out of this conversation than to stay in it. So imagine you're Iron Man with that, <laughs> that magical nuclear power driven heart. And that beam coming from your chest is just shining directly on the other person nonstop. It's a lot. And at first, it sounds, well, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I want to give the other person attention? Sure. Why wouldn't I want to show them that I'm interested in them? Why wouldn't I want them to know that I'm listening? But as Johnny said, we again are putting all of our focus on the other person. We're shining this beam straight from our chest at the other person. And all it does is actually repel the other person. It makes them uncomfortable. It's too much of a need to please the other person non-verbally. So we talked about shrinking, making yourself smaller. We've talked about fully facing someone. 
The other one that we see a lot of on our video work in X Factor Accelerator is avoidance of eye contact. <laughs> so you'll find yourself unable to look people in the eye for fear of judgment, for fear of being found out, or maybe just general discomfort. But again, what that is signifying, not only a lack of confidence, but it's signifying that your needs are not that important. It doesn't matter where you're looking. Like, you're just happy to be there. You know, it's it's making yourself small in nonverbal ways that send a signal of a lack of confidence and actually elevates the status of everyone around you to your own detriment. To hear about the other two low-value behaviors you need to avoid, listen to the full episode titled Avoid These Three Low-Value Behaviors from April 2022, linked in the show notes. And since we ended on eye contact, let's hear what behavioral scientist Abby Morano has to say about using it in different settings. We think that people that look away are lying or people that look away are hiding something. And that just isn't true. People look away all the time. They might be uncomfortable. They might be very comfortable, but they just don't give much eye contact. Um, in terms of how to give good eye contact, we have this um, sort of optimum square. And it's from the nose to the eyes. Square, triangle, sorry. From the eyes to the nose. And it's this, this is the business gate. The eyes to the nose. And that's where we look. And then we kind of have a more social gaze, which is from the eyes to the mouth. And then that's where we look sort of in a social setting. And then we have the intimate gaze, which is the eyes down to the chest. So you wouldn't look from the eyes to the chest in a business setting, like you should also avoid in a business setting looking from the eyes to the mouth. You stay within that business gaze. So that's kind of a good paradigm of where to look in different settings. But in terms of how much to look, I don't think there is, you know, a perfect amount of eye contact to give. Also, because people differ in how much eye contact they like to receive. So give good eye contact, you know, regular eye contact, but don't stare at somebody because that makes them uncomfortable. And just recognize, you know, do they look like I'm making them uncomfortable by looking at them too much? And if they, they start to look a bit nervous, you know, just move your gaze away. You don't have to completely turn and ignore them. But just, you know, flip to other things and show them you're listening. And then kind of flip to other things and show them you're listening again. So just, you have to figure out how they're comfortable and how you're comfortable as well. Because if you're thinking, okay, eye contact, eye contact, eye contact, you're probably going to miss the fact that they're like, why are they giving me so much eye contact? <laughs> it's uncomfortable. So don't think too much about it. I would just stay within the correct gaze frame. And then go with what feels comfortable. And that is as much attention, really, that I give to eye contact. Because I think it really is, again, just that simple. That we look for this perfect amount or perfect equation for things. And we overcomplicate it. And then struggle to do it perfectly. Check out the full episode from April 2022 titled How to Read Body Language. Linked in the show notes. And just as Abby had mentioned, most people, when they hear this advice, will try to be perfect at it from the start. Let's hear what Dr. Jennifer Kemp has to say about how to overcome perfectionism in our March episode, Perfectionism, the Enemy of Progress. I think about uh, perfectionism like 
like on a continuum from sort of like maybe you guys like really relaxed to perfectionistic and then OCD is out the other end and like where you really locked down then and that is immobilizing like if I can't make any mistake at all then uh I can't do anything I literally am frozen I've had clients, like it goes a lot into health as well, right? I work on a lot of health goals. I see a lot of people for weight management and binge eating problems and um, and a lot of them, like very simple goals are really hard to set. I'll say, you know, let's talk about increasing your physical exercise. You know, that's part of a, this sort of broader healthy life that we're trying to build. And they go, sure, I'm going to go walking every day. Mm. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> No, you're not. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. Like, immediately they set this perfect forever goal. So the first day that it's raining or they have to go to work early or, you know, they can't walk, um, they've failed because of this sort of rigid absolute rule. So then it's like, well, I'm always failing, so I'm just going to give up now. And or, you know, you forget for the whole week. And then, oh, I'm supposed to be walking, you know, well, I'm a failure. So there's another bit of evidence for that. So I try and work on increasing the frequency of that particular thing over time, increasing the frequency of the desired behavior over time. So it's like if if what we're aiming for is uh, increasing some healthy habits, um, maybe we're eating lunch every day so that we don't get to dinner completely starving or to eat and finish off a tub of ice cream. You know, let's start adding in lunch. So like how many times can you add lunch in across the week? Let's see what you can do and let's see if we can use that as a baseline and keep building on that. Or how many walks do you think you could get done between now and when I next see you? So it's introducing this idea of it being like it's an imperfect goal, isn't it? We're not aiming for an absolute, mo- like from <laughs> always to this, like um, from now for forever, I'm going to do this new behavior. It's like, no, you're not because humans are imperfect and you just, it, you're just setting yourself up for failure. And that new behavior has to become a, an identity, right? If you go from a couch to now I'm a walker and I walk every day, that's such a great identity shift. That's not going to happen after a couple strolls in the afternoon. It doesn't. It happens over time when we can start to see that this is something that I can do that I, you know, I whack on my favorite podcast and I can enjoy. It's the only time I get to listen to podcasts going walking. So I was listening to one this morning. And so, you know, there's a bonus there. And I, uh, and I, um, yeah, I get to enjoy that experience and I can start to see myself as a regular walker, someone who really enjoys doing that. So this continuum of perfectionism, you know, I'd like to talk on the the high perfectionism side, some of the mental health impacts, because I think, and even I didn't know in going through the workbook that all of these were tied to perfectionism. And then after we talk about some of these mental health issues, then, you know, what are those warning signs, like the blinking red light on our dashboard? That's like, okay, maybe this perfectionism that's been helping me strive in my career is now starting to control my life, starting to control my eating, starting to impact me in really negative ways. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think that's, you know, that's the sort of the outcome, isn't it, of these avoidant behaviors, whether they're, they're active avoidant behaviors. Like I'm, I'm finding that I'm spending so long just going over and over the emails and the reports I have to produce. I'm working three hours longer than I need to, or I'm getting behind in my work. My boss is unhappy with me. Like when it's starting to cause big problems like that, or I'm having a lot of difficulty spending all my time worrying about eating and food and can't go to a social event because I'm worried about what they're going to serve and what I'm supposed to eat when I'm there. Or um, those are the sorts of signs that things are getting, yeah, getting out of hand, I guess you'd say, and that you're definitely heading into an area of mental health problems. So the common mental health problems that overlap with perfectionism is probably number one, or I can't rank them because they're all very, very related. OCD and perfectionism go together like hand in glove. Because of that difficulty with uncertainty that Johnny was talking about, about needing to like control. And um, OCD is all about control and not uh, like being able to control your world and to avoid feeling the distress, the uneasiness that, that the obsession is sort of triggering in you. So that's what all the compulsions are about in OCD. And it is, I've missed it. I've missed it in clients for ages. I've been working on them with perfectionism and then realized, taking me a while to realize just how far it's spread into multiple different areas of their life. I mean, OCD is one where people, everyone sort of thinks of it as like, I'm so OCD because I have a tidy home, which is, you know, such an unfortunately not a good thing to say because it's a very serious mental health problem but talking like it's and, and they think about it as hand washing uh, and those kinds of things there's many different types of it and it can take a little while to realize that these things are linked together that's where you probably need to see a therapist to help you get that one sorted eating as well so eating disorders of all kinds sort of anorexia the more chaotic bulimic or binge eating those kinds of types of eating disorders particular anorexia nervosa is, is really about uh, control again and certainly you can have it in any other kind as well and if you're finding that you're spending a huge amount of your day or almost all day worrying about food weight eating your body those kinds of things then there's a problem like that's not a good way to live your life and you can get help on that one there's a few others too Oh yeah, just one more. I just wanted to say, Johnny, if I can, sorry, is depression is a huge relationship with it. That was the one I wanted to discuss because I don't think many people make that that link. I think OCD is is pretty easy for someone to think, okay, well, if you're seeking perfection with your body or your weight, okay, I can understand an eating disorder. OCD, perfection around the house, I can understand lights needing to be in a certain position. But depression you know, that I wouldn't think is often considered to be linked to perfectionism. How do those two relate? So depression, stress and burnout, because if you're always setting yourself up to fail, so you're never meeting your own standards or you can't do things because you can't do them perfectly, you end up feeling like a failure and uh, avoiding a lot of really fulfilling things in your life. Um, so many people, I can't go out. I feel awkward. You know, my friends don't like me. I'll say something stupid. So they don't go. I mean, we know that depression isn't just a chemical imbalance in the brain. That may be an outcome though. It is 
being pulled away from, being disconnected from meaningful work, being disconnected from meaningful relationships, a sense of purpose, back to that those values we were talking about before. Depression is, is caused by that sort of disconnection. You know, we are, we're social monkeys, humans. We need to connect with other monkeys, kind of thing, you know, and we need, and if we don't have those connections and that sense of purpose and meaning and belonging, then we end up depressed. It's one of the biggest causes um, of depression. So yeah, those people you're talking about who've, you know, their mum and dad were lawyers. They did well in English at school. They were sent to law school. They're now lawyers and now they're in their 30s going, what am I doing with my life? I hate this stuff. Quite possibly going to be depressed because they've not got that connection to that meaning and purpose in their lives. As many of our clients realize as they're building their circle of friends and a professional network, setting up and maintaining boundaries is essential. However, it's something that a lot of people struggle with, myself included. We had Nedra Tawab on, the author of Set Boundaries and Find Peace, to discuss just that. There are people who will constantly push against those boundaries, and the boundaries are things for us to uphold. So if you have boundaries with another person, it's always really helpful to think about what are you doing to honor this boundary? If you've spoken about, I will not talk about politics with you. Are you engaging in the conversation that you just said you don't <laughs> want to have? <laughs> and we do that so often. We'll be like, they keep yes. talking to me about it. And you're talking to them about what you don't want to talk about. <laughs> Who has the boundary? If you have the boundary, when certain things come up, you will need to be the person saying, hey, I'm, I'm not talking to you about this thing. Hey, we've talked about this. Did you see that Geico commercial? I mean, you can bring up anything else, but this won't be it because we are not talking about this. How do you advocate for your boundary and not put it on this other person who doesn't want to have the boundary to always adhere to your rules. When you described it earlier as a lifestyle choice, right? That, that gives, puts power into your hands. If you want to accept it, you are deciding whether or not to adhere to these boundaries. And as you mentioned, if, if you set up these boundaries, but, but you're the one breaking them, well, why is anyone else going to take them seriously? They're certainly not going to respect that. Um, and the other point that we should discuss as well as with family and coworkers and friends, it's not that these people are malicious. It is, they know they can get away with it. Their life will be easier if they ask you to do it, or if they push those boundaries, because in the past you have obliged. So if it's easier for them to just push it off, well, that's going to happen. And I'll give a, an anecdote to this. Uh, there, a, a while ago, we had an open door policy for a lot of our employees so that they were able to reach us, get their questions asked and make sure that they were able to do the work that they needed to do. As any team leader, you want your, your staff to be able to access that. And, and we wanted to be as open as possible. But then we had realized that anytime that they had a question that they would take us up on that open door policy. And then the next thing that we had realized was, well, the things that we needed to get done 
weren't getting done because we're now busy answering everyone else's questions on, on the staff and realize that as nice as that strategy seemed on paper, it was being taken advantage of. So now that the boundaries would need to be put in place and what's important there is we weren't helping our employees by having an open door policy. We had trained them that anytime that they were stumped to just come to us, which did not help them learn and develop and evolve for their roles. Absolutely. So, Perhaps the boundary on your end is making sure that people understand what they need to do and then giving them the space to do that. And when they come to you, referring them back to to their sales, you know, how have you thought about solutions for that? What did you come up with instead of saying, okay, here are all the things that I would do in this situation because... A manager's job, a supervisor's job, a parent's job, and most humans' jobs is to work people out of, you know, needing you for total support. And so if you are continuously um, in that support role, they will come to you. If you think about it, stores even do that. When you go to the grocery store, there are huge signs that says bread tea, you know, whatever in this aisle. Why? They don't want you going to everyone and saying, (laughs) hey, where is the bread? Hey, where is the tea? (laughs) They want you to look up and be able to go get it. And the only thing they want you to come to them for is for the things not listed on the sign because I've asked and it's been on that sign and they'll point right to that sign. Yep. Uh, it's right there on aisle eight. <laughs> it's like, did you read the sign? <laughs> well, I think what's an important part of this for many who are struggling with boundaries is it's not even like people are going across them because they're malicious Mm -hmm. or because they're trying to harm you. Oftentimes it's completely invisible to them and they are just acting in ways that best suit them without thinking positively or negatively about you. And as Johnny said, it's often hardest to put boundaries around behaviors that we've conditioned others as acceptable in our life for months, years, even friends and family that we've known forever, they can be often the most challenging to set up new boundaries because we have had the open door policy for years. They have been able to hop on Slack at any hour of the day and tag me or Johnny and get that immediate response. And now all of a sudden we're saying, hey, we're going to have a stand up meeting Bring all your questions in that stand-up meeting so that the other seven hours of this day, I can actually get done what I need to get done. And we had to state that boundary a number of times. It's very easy when we've conditioned others on one behavior for them to just stick with it, to not realize, oh, you know what? We had a meeting about this last week and AJ and Johnny were clear in that meeting of what they wanted. Uh, I totally forgot about that. I just had this thing come up and I wanted to get it handled. So I did want to make that point. Oftentimes it's very easy to think, well, man, these people are are really being rude. <laughs> I told them that I don't want to do this. I told them that I don't have time for them and they keep crossing this boundary. Uh, when in actuality, well, we've 
conditioned them for years that that was completely acceptable behavior. And just because we articulated it once or twice to assume that they're now going to change their behavior, remember, and instantly follow the boundary, it's just not realistic. So we are going to have to restate these boundaries. Absolutely. And that is the healthiest thing you could do for yourself is repeat your boundary. As humans, we do not follow rules consistently. I think about traffic lights, right? They have sent, you know, for as long as I've been alive, they've been on the streets. It's green, yellow, red. You know what these things mean. I think you figure that out by the time you're in first grade. You're not even driving. You understand green, yellow, and red, right? If we were to able, if we were able to always obey rules, we wouldn't have moving violations. We wouldn't have traffic violations. We're still running red lights. <laughs> we're still getting tickets for driving through those yellows right on the brink of the rip. You know, like so as humans, I'm not saying, you know, everybody is following rules. I'm throwing myself in there. There have been times when I'm not following every rule to a T. So you do have to repeat it. How do how does that happen in society? Consequences. How does that happen in relationships? Consequences. Sometimes when people aren't adhering to our boundaries, we have to issue a consequence. Hey, you have to be to work at eight o'clock. And some jobs, your job, literally, you're opening this business. You must be here at eight. If you're continuously late, you don't have a job anymore. Like that's the consequence. So in relationships, we have consequences. It can be you know, in a friendship, I want you to come to my party and bring the cake. If you bring the cake late and then you bring it late again next year, you're not going to be my cake person because you're not reliable, right? Like you can't pick up anything because you can't even get here on time. Or maybe I won't even invite you. Like those are consequences that naturally occur and we have to not only repeat ourselves and don't think it's a silly thing to do we do it all the time from the time I was probably one to 18 I was told a gazillion times clean my room clean my room clean my room clean my room oh blah 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 <laughs> there may have been 20 days where I actually cleaned my room on my own, but I was told for many years, clean your room. We repeat things over and over when they are important to us. And when we get to the point of, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of repeating myself, that is where the consequence comes in. In our March episode, Overcoming Nice Guy Syndrome, Dr. Robert Glover Author of No More Mr. Nice Guy talks about covert contracts that many nice guys and girls often have and that ruin both their dating lives and their social lives in general. And this is a core, a core staple of nice guy syndrome. And covert contract just means covert means is, is hidden, is not in the open, is indirect, it's even unconscious. Oftentimes nice guys are not aware of their own covert contract. And I promise you the other people on the other end of the contract have no fucking clue that it exists. So basically nice guys have three primary covert contracts. And for every nice guy, one might be more prominent than the other. Um, but most have these three. And the first one is if I'm a good guy, 
I will be liked and loved. And 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 add to that for us men. And and the women I want to have sex with will want to have sex with me if if I'm that good guy. Now, the you know, what does that even mean if if I'm a good guy? But and you know, we're the scorekeeper of that. Well, if I'm generous, if if I don't argue, if I'm not, you know, if I don't say hurtful things, if I never ask for what I want, that'll make me a good guy. If I'm different from my father, if I'm different than those bad, that'll make me a good guy. And then everybody will like me and love me. Now, all of these all of these covert contracts have deep flaws to them. Number one, nobody's all good, right? And number two, nobody likes everybody. I mean, I don't like everybody, no matter how good of people. I don't like everybody. So there's no way that you're going to be universally liked. And there is no way, in spite of what men tend to read on the Internet, there is no way that every woman you want to have sex with is going to want to have sex with you. There is no magic bullet. And, and nice guy seduction is actually the worst possible way to try to get that to happen. So, but yes, what happens is this giving to get, the, the strings attached kind of stuff, the if then, if I'm a good guy, then I'll be, be liked and loved, um, is what, one of the things that makes nice guys so, so dishonest and so untrustworthy is because there's they're, 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 they're strings attached. This is actually manipulation if you think about it. Okay, then the second yeah. covert contract, talk about manipulation, is if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask. So in other words, I read their mind, I give to them what I think they, they might want to receive. If I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will read my mind and give me what I need without me having to ask. Now, again, deep flaws in this, because number one, giving to other people so they'll like us and give back is, is codependency, right? It is, yes. it is manipulative. And the other people don't know that the contract exists and that they're supposed to be reading our mind too and giving back. Now, some other real deep flaws <laughs> in terms of this covert contract for nice guys is often they pick people who not only do they not know the covert contract exists, they're often not very equipped to give much back. You know, if you go out and pick a fixer upper of a woman, oh, you know, she's depressed or, you know, she just got fired from her job because she doesn't get along with anybody or she has money problems or, you know, she's, you know, whatever her issues are. Oh, I can fix that. I'll, I'll do this. You know, I can, I can help make her car payment. I'll listen to her talk about her problems. I'll be there for her. I'll do this. And usually what we're picking is people that are not highly functional in themselves. And we think if we get them fixed up, we'll have this diamond in the rough and then they'll, they'll get back to me. But the truth is, they don't have much to give back because they're not even good at, at functioning at a, at a at least a, a medium or a high level themselves. Now, it gets even worse. Remember I said that nice guys hide things? Well, as I said, what we hide is our needs and our wants because most guys, nice guys believe we are bad for having needs and wants. The people are going to respond negatively to our needs and wants that, or that everybody else's needs and wants are more important than my own which that actually makes us really terrible receivers. And this is maybe this is maybe one of the biggest pieces I've had to work on in my nice guy work. I think I think yeah. being honest was probably number 1, but learning to give to myself, to let other people give to me, to practice receiving, to surround myself with people who want to give to me and who are capable and me being clear and asking for what I want, not being subtly manipulative so that they'll guess what I want or need to give it to me. I've, I've learned to ask for what I want. Hey, can you do this? You know, and, and just, if they can, great. If they can't, find other resources uh, for whatever that is. So covert contract number two, 
really, really spins up that resentment in nice guys. And, and, not, and guys will say, well, how do you know if I, is this just being nice and generous and kind, or is it a covert contract? Which is a really good question, because it, it does take some time and some consciousness to kind of, you know, part that apart. But one of the best way to tell that if it's a covert contract is that you start feeling resentful, uh, unappreciated, giving more than you get, uh, you know, done to, the, those, those are signs that probably you have covert contracts. Okay. Then the third one is uh, if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, again, nobody does everything right. I mean, you know, every great religious book basically says we're all sinners. We're all flawed. We're all imperfect. You know, none of us, none of us, you know, are good enough. And so we're not going to do everything right. And again, we're the scorekeeper of that. I did that right. I did that right. I got a big scoreboard in, in, in my living room. I did that right. I did that right. And so I should have a smooth, problem-free life. And this is a covert contract we tend to make with God, right, with the universe. <laughs> Look, God, I'm a good guy, you know? How, how come I don't have a girlfriend? How, how, how come I have a crappy job? How come I, I drive a crappy car? How, how come, you know, this stuff keeps happening to me and, and you know, I, I keep getting with people that treat me badly? Life should be good. I'm, I'm doing everything right. Well, life is not smooth and problem-free. I mean, just look at COVID-19, right? Life is not smooth and problem-free. And so if we have this almost Peter Panish infantile belief, oh, I'll do everything right, and then everything will be smooth. Uh, it's a very immature way of living life because the truth is the challenges and difficulties in life are our best learning tool. And if we can say, "Great, this I'm I'm, I'm so gr I'm glad this is happening. I get to grow. I get to evolve. I, I I get to be matured. I get to be refined by this struggle." Rather than saying, "I don't want struggle. I want everything smooth." And you know, I don't know if you guys, but I've I've never found a relationship with a woman to be smooth. It just never has worked that way for me as much as I've wanted them to be that way. And I've never found life in general to be smooth. Now, life can be damn good, but smooth is a completely different thing. And to wrap this up, listen to what our guest from May, Zoe Chance, has to say about the power of the so-called awkward pause and how I or me statements can lower your charisma. When you're building up energy or you're getting going on your big idea, the way to get everyone's attention attuned keenly to you in that moment is to pause, right? The incredible connection of the intimacy that comes from the quietness or the quiet song after the big loud experience. We film our clients and one of my biggest frustrations is they label that silence as awkward. Awkward. <laughs> and just that labeling of awkward diminishes the power in silence, in the pause, changing your cadence and just allowing them to slow down. Because many of us, when we're feeling that attention on us, we tend to speed up. Right. And that internal gauge then forces us to speak faster. We muffle our words. We don't get the point across. But the best orators are those who slow their cadence, pause, let the audience catch up to what they just shared. That actually soaks in their attention and it's not awkward. So we use the power of video to play it back for our clients. And then they realize that wasn't awkward at all. I was feeling it because I labeled it as an awkward silence. And that awkward silence term is just so pervasive. And I, I hate it because I love the pause. 
I love slowing down. Yeah, we should absolutely drop that frame of awkward pause because it prevents us from pausing. But I never thought about that until you shared this in that moment. And I guess we can also just acknowledge where the awkwardness comes from is that pauses are vulnerable. And it is because the attention zings right toward us and we do feel very vulnerable, but that's actually what we wanted. If we call it the awkward pause, then we're not allowing ourselves to get that thing that we were aiming for. What I also really enjoyed was the concept of diminishing statements and the way that we're using pronouns. So obviously pronouns are a hot topic in today's world, but there are specific pronouns that we use that actually diminish our charisma in the eyes of someone else. And I'd love to discuss that because I thought that was so insightful in the book. This is very cool research by a guy at the University of Texas named James Pennebaker. Others have built on it, but he did the seminal work on these aren't gender pronouns, it's first person pronouns. And he was interested in studying the relationship between pronouns and power. So he did textual analyses of all of these conversations, emails, speeches, all of these formal and informal things that people said to each other and just counted the number of times that a person said I or me or mine. And what he found was a very strong relationship. And if you're listening, see if you can guess the relationship between pronouns and power. And maybe because you're a listener of this show, you already can guess it. But a lot of people have it the opposite, that they believe that powerful people are talking about themselves because they're self-centered. And it's actually the opposite, that when we feel empowered or when we at least don't feel disempowered, then we don't need to focus on ourselves because we're not self-conscious. So pronouns are a cue of self-consciousness, which is anti-charisma. The thing that's hard about practicing, eliminating some, and obviously it's not that you're never going to talk about yourself or say I, me, or mine, but the practice of eliminating some of these first person statements and other diminishers I'll talk about in a sec is that if you are monitoring your conversation for self-consciousness, you are having to be self-conscious while you're self-monitoring. So I encourage people, if there's anything you're trying to eliminate from your language, that you do it just with an email and just anytime you feel like it or have a regular practice of scanning your emails. And that way, you're not having to try to be self-monitoring, but not self-conscious. So this idea that we're using these I, me, mine kind of statements a lot when we feel self-conscious is because we're using them very often as diminishers. And diminishers are any statements that make us smaller in order to not be threatening to other people. Statements like, uh, I just thought, like, I was wondering, um, I could be wrong, but, and we use all kinds of hedges, like, actually, maybe, kind of, sort of. A lot of these diminishers are introductory preambles to the thing that we wanted to say that are just so incredibly hard to listen to. And so the other person has tuned out by the time we got to the actual thing. There are gender effects here. So women use diminishers and these kinds of preambles more than men do. But this is more a result of power differences than gender differences, at least in my opinion and the opinions of some other researchers who study this stuff. 
what's interesting is that you don't have this fixed place in a hierarchy, right, in your life. It's all contextual. So there will be some contexts in which you have more situational power and some contexts in which you have less situational power. And that researcher I mentioned, James Pennebaker, did a textual analysis of his own emails, writing to a higher status person and a lower status person about the same topic. And he found that he had exactly the same pattern that other people do. When he's writing to the lower status person, he just says the thing. He says, would you be willing to move your office? Talking to a grad student. When he's talking to this esteemed professor, far more famous than he is, he's like, well, I, I hope it's not going to come to this, but I think that it's possible that I'm going to have to ask you the spaces that are... Pr-. And like, you don't even know what he's talking about. Right. So solutions to diminishers are just say the thing. <laughs> And also shifting the focus off of yourself by asking questions of the other person. It's not you need to talk about them, but asking their opinion or their advice. What I've noticed in in filming our clients for the last 15 years is many times we take this frame to relate. So we'll say, I love that too, or I'm into that too. Mm. And this subtle shift that I teach our clients to speak from a we perspective So instead of saying, I like that too, be like, oh, we should go to the Prince concert together. It says the same thing, but it doesn't put the focus on yourself. And it sets the frame of we. When we speak in terms of we, the assumption is we're already in a relationship. We're already friends. We're already connected. And oftentimes when we feel the social anxiety, we do feel like we have to be the most interesting. We have to offer up all of this information about ourselves. If we all feel that way, then we all feel unheard. And that's where Mm -hmm. that second paradox comes in, where if all we're thinking about is ourselves and all we're doing is sharing ourselves, the other person doesn't feel engaged at all, doesn't feel any charisma from that experience. Yeah. And this brings up a question that I wanted to ask you because both of you, because I get asked this a lot about where is the line between genuine connection and manipulation, especially when we're talking about tactical things like this, like obviously all of us are interested in. And we is an example of exactly what you said. And it's also an example of a red flag for manipulators who are trying to pretend that we are on a team, that we're friends. It can be used in both ways, but this is like so many principles of influence. What is your take on that? I'm glad you brought this up because a lot of our clients do ask this question because when we're when we're discussing a lot of the influence and persuasion tactics in conversation and connecting with people, it can seem that somebody who's using these things to manipulate would grab onto these things. And if they're using them, they can look the same. However, it is the intention behind all of those strategies. So if your intent is to manipulate, to cause harm, to lead someone into doing something they don't want to be doing, well, now we're talking about manipulation. Influence in itself is you're supposed to be helping somebody towards a over a hurdle that they're looking for answers for. You should be helping them or giving value into their lives. If it is for you or how you're gonna extract value for yourself, well, now we're getting into manipulation territory. Yeah, we view it through the lens of cooperation. We're gonna talk about this in, in next month's toolbox. So we talked about low value behaviors and you know Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, is great research on this, that cooperation with boundaries is how we actually get ahead and is how both parties end up in a winning situation. Now, 
Of course, if you just give with no boundaries, you also end up the victim far behind and plaintiff in lawsuits taken advantage of. And that's the delicate balance that a lot of our clients have is that they haven't built up a repertoire of boundaries. They don't know what their needs are. So they just seek out valuing the needs of others, fulfilling the needs of others. And of course, that's a very slippery slope. We only have so much that we can give. The intent behind all of these actions, we say it it could be just like a Jedi for good or yep. a Sith for bad. And that's the power <laughs> with, with the language, the words we use, and the way we communicate. Thank you for being a listener in 2022. And we're super excited to spend 2023 with you. Oh my God. AJ, can you believe 2023? Just seems weird even saying that. It's going to be a great year. This week's shout out goes to Matt, who told us that the X Factor Accelerator helped him identify and deconstruct longstanding patterns that kept him from being seen as a project manager. Before the Art of Charm, Matt felt stagnant in his career. He felt like he was just going through the motions. He was stuck in autopilot. Having an outside perspective on how he was viewing the work environment unlocked a flawed thought pattern. After identifying it, he was able to reconstruct a new belief about himself that allowed him to blast past that glass ceiling. He's now managing multiple projects. Way to go, Matt. If you want wins like Matt, apply today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. If you listen this far, my guess is that you want more out of life and you are ready to break out of autopilot and reach your full potential. If that's the case, then join us, the Art of Charm team, and podcast fans just like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, and growing an incredible network inside our world-famous X-Factor Accelerator program. The X Factor Accelerator is where high achieving, like minded people meet, strategize, and unlock your hidden X Factor to make sure that you get the most out of life's opportunities and unlock those doors keeping you from success. We start every month with an intense goal setting strategy session so you have a personalized plan of attack, as well as weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice your conversation skills, rapid rapport building supercharge your charisma through powerful communication, and unlock the charm to attract the right people into your life. Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with The Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. We hope you have an epic week. See you next year.